0: So today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start reading. We'll just read the whole section. We'll backtrack just a little to get some context uh, when we go deeper in study here. But um, we're going to start in verse 4 for our deeper study today. And so I'm going to be not in the extra spiritual version today. I'm not in ESV today. I am in the not as spiritual version, the NASB, but don't hold that against me. We're going to dive into verse 4 here. So follow along with me. It says, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him Will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray as we look at this scripture today that you would open our hearts and see how you want us to live so that we can glorify and honor you. God, heal our hearts and do a work that only you can do as we turn our eyes to you and off our situation and circumstances. Help us to filter everything we're going through 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 your lens, Jesus, and let you heal. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in order to get the full context of what we're going through today, we're gonna back up to chapter one and go through a couple verses. And we'll see the motivation for why we're going to learn what we're doing today and what scripture has for us. The why. So in verse 22 of chapter 1, we see Peter say, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently loved one another from the heart. A believer's motivation in relationships is love. And we're going to read the rest of this in that context. A believer's motivation in relationship is what? It is love. We need to have a deep affection for one another. A love that God gives us for one another. We're going to breeze through. Ben did an awesome job teaching last week on the first few verses, but this sets up our context as well. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, the motivator isn't telling my mind, Oh, I can't do that. Positive side is still love. I love that person. And you don't say things against your, a person you love, right? We have an affection for them. And so we don't want to tear them down. Our motivator is love. So a believer builds up and doesn't tear down. And as one of your pastors here, I want to build you up. I want to encourage you in your giftings. I want to encourage you in your walk from Christ and running from sin in your process of sanctification. I want to build you up and encourage you to study the Word of God. And then it continues on in verse two: like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that they may grow in respect. The, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So as you know, Christina and I, we have six kids. And my wife nursed all of them and she changed diapers, she says, for 15, 14, 15 years straight. Yeah, she's like, yeah, was it worth it? She didn't give me anything. Um, So, yes, but it's annoying when the babies are hungry, right? They say, I'm hungry now and I'm not waiting a moment. I'm hungry and you better give me food or I'm going to make your life miserable until you do. Right? They crave it. They want it. They have to have it. And that's the way we need to be with the Word of God. So a believer craves the Word of God. We can't live without it. I can't do without it. I can't live the rest of my day until I get the Word of God. I'm so hungry for it, just like a baby. That's the point. We need it. We crave it. And then it says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If. That's a big if. If you have not tasted the kindness of the Lord, we're going to tear down and not build up. If we have not tasted the kindness of the Lord, we're not going to crave the word of God. That if you have tasted is talking about salvation. Have we placed our faith in Christ? Have you tasted God's saving grace in you. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord and said, I am a sinner and I need salvation and I trust in your death and resurrection, Lord. That's tasting the kindness of the Lord. We went on vacations as a family. My dad's a teacher. He signed for his 52nd year, which he'll do this next year. He's been teaching music for 51 years and he just signed for another year and I bumped up. I bumped into some people up in the mountain that their kids actually go to school where my dad teaches at Lincoln Christian. And they said, Mr. Bear. They're like, oh, you're Ken. Mr. Bear is their favorite teacher. Anyway, side story. Um, We'd go on vacations and we would go for like a month and a half, two months because my dad's a teacher. We'd have the summers off. And so we'd travel. And one of the summers we memorized Psalm 32 or 34, the entire thing together as a family. And... Says this, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We focus on God's goodness. David went through some terrible things and we talked about the Psalms and Justin even read one here this morning. Um, It said, um, his loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. And you see how David points to that all the time and the other psalmists as well. It seems like Peter was reading Psalm uh, 118 or had, had it fresh on his mind because several themes come up from Psalm 118. When I read that one, then I read this chapter, it just seemed to line up. Um, in some of the themes and one of those things is that his loving kindness his loving kindness is everlasting a believer focuses on God's goodness it's easy to get focused and distracted on what's going on around here but we focus on his loving kindness is everlasting on his goodness uh, Renato and I were talking and uh, Renato you know is our tech director and thank you Renato for keeping things going while I was gone um, amazing, thank you um, And she's pretty wise, too. Yeah, you should talk to her. Um, She really, yeah, she really loves the Lord. She shared this quote with me from Lisa Turkhurst, and it said this, I must process my hurt through the filter of God's love, not the tangled pieces of my heart. When I process things through my heart, the outcome is, if God loves me so much, why would he let this happen? Have you been there? I've been there before. Instead, when I process things through the filter of God's love, the outcome is God loves me so much, therefore, I can trust why he is allowing this to happen. We focus on God's goodness. We process our hurt through his goodness. So focusing on God's goodness changes how we interact with others so we don't tear down, but we build up. So now on to the new material. Here's verse 4. This is what we're diving into today. It says, And coming to him as, a, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Hang on just a moment. A living what? Stone? Stones aren't living Right, Unless it's lava and it's liquid, I guess. But that's not a stone, that's lava. A a stone is solid and it's dead and it sits on the ground and it can't sprout up legs and walk away or do anything. If I slap some googly eyes onto a rock, kind of wiggle it around, is it living? No, we can't make stones come alive. But... There was an example of a living stone that I thought of. And can you toss that up on the screen? There's a living stone. So we're all going to go down to the courthouse when it opens tomorrow and change our name to Stone, just like Stone Warden there, so that we can be a living stone. No, not what it's talking about, obviously. It's a metaphor. And I think it's important to remember that God can make anything come alive. And in this example, God can make anything come alive, even stones. Remember, we are dust, and to dust we will return. And the formation of humankind, God fashioned the dirt. And then, he breathed his breath of life into the dust, and it became living. God can do that with dust. Can he do it with stones? And my heart was as hard as stone. And in rebellion against God, he was able to do a work to make it come alive. Those of you believers, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? He caused life in us where there was death and rebellion. God can make anything come alive. Another reason I think Peter uses this um, term stone is just because of his close relationship with that word um, Jesus said to him in Matthew 16, I say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. How about Peter's name? Did you know that wasn't his original name? Peter's original name was was Simeon, or some versions have it Simon. And Jesus comes to him in John 1, verse 42, and Andrew brought him to Jesus, Peter, Simon at that point. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Petros or Peter, which means rock. Jesus literally called Peter, He said, Your name is Rock. So he has this close relationship with what stones are and he sees that these people are coming alive. Now, we see why he uses this stone analogy. In the next verse it says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up sac- spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So not only is Jesus a living stone, but it says, so you also is living stone. So we each are living stones as well. It calls Jesus a living stone, and so are you. And you're being built into a spiritual house. These stones are being placed into a spiritual houses, into a place that we can that we are priests in, it says. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are getting placed as a stone into the spiritual house and you are, a, I'm not a priest. And I think we have a messed up idea of what a priest is. Now, if we look in the Old Testament, I'll dive into that later. We'll go later. I, I went long last time, so I'm sparing you a little bit. <laughs> um, so we say we're building, being built on a building built as a spiritual house. And then we look at that holy priesthood. The Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. It is no longer a building that we go to. The Spirit of God ministers directly to us because the Spirit lives within us when we get saved. And so we look at this and, and we build on the New Testament believers We build on all those people in church history that have come before us. And we look at that, and some of you might be saying, but there were mistakes. How can we trust what we're building on if I look at that structure, and it seems kind of wonky there, right? The next verse tells us how we can know that we're building in the right direction. Verse 6 says, for this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. We sang the song, Christ alone, cornerstone, right, weak made strong in the Savior's love. We sang that this morning, and I love how the worship team made this all line up here. But what is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the first stone that is laid when a building is going to be built. And by it, it determines the length, the depth, how far down it's going to be, the angle of it all um, in relation to the sun or the wind, um, how it's going to fit with the other buildings around it. It ensures that, it's, that the entire building is going to be in the correct position, right? Right? for the builders intent, an inch this way, and the whole building is an inch over this way, an inch deeper, and the whole building is an inch deeper. Fun fact about this building, it's about six, feet, six inches to a foot too low. When they established how low it was going to be, they set it too low. So the sidewalks around were higher than the foundation. So there was a drainage project that we had to undertake. And you see the drains out there now. That was part of our building project because that stone was laid too deep. That depth was set too deep. It makes a big difference, right? And we ended up with problems with our drainage because it was too deep. Some of my work history, some of you know some of it, some of you don't. One of the things that I did when I was growing up, and in high school, and getting into college. Um, I've had a lot of different jobs. Anybody else like that, where you just had a ton of different jobs and experiences? Some of you were like, nope, I just had one job, and I was pretty steady in it. I had a ton of different jobs. Um, It gave me lots of experiences, but one of the jobs that I had was to build retaining walls and patios, and we had to deal a lot with rock and stone, and... So we'd have these little residential blocks like these here. This would be a residential, and you, you'd grab them. You have tools. You can carry one in each hand, and you'd place them all. This one just happened to conveniently be sitting out by the office door. Um, and every once in a while, you'd smash your fingers. You're placing them in. But one thing was true is that you had to get the base level smooth and flat. If you had one little bump in a rock, that little bump magnify it out and then you'd be a big bump later on as you get higher because it it affected things above it and we also worked with some large stones two-ton blocks are about this wide about this deep about yay high the heavy ones had some hooks on them and we just picked them up no we had a skid steer and we'd pick up those blocks and we set them down. But before we could do that, we had to make sure the base was correct. And so we had some tools that we used, and I think this is like the modern day cornerstone, if you will. Any DeWalt fans in here? This isn't mine. I wish though. (laughs) This right here, if we fire it on, gives us a level beam all throughout this building. It is all level. Everything is in line with this right here. It's consistent throughout the entire room here. And what I would do with this, my job, I got the exciting role of carrying a rake and a tool a lot like this. And uh, we'd go through and they'd come through with the skid steer tearing up the dirt and I'd fire on my little tool. And I'd say, oh, but it's too low. And so I'd take my rake if it was just a little bit too low. If it was too high, I'd signal them back in and they'd cut some more because we needed to get a little lower. And we'd make sure the dirt was deeper. Um, Then we'd come through and we'd dump some crushed concrete or some gravel down on top of that. And again, I would come through with my little tool. I'd set it down and say, oh, if it's just a little bit, I'd use my rake, pull some in or push it away, make sure it's level front to back, side to side, so that stone would lay down flat and straight. We didn't just eyeball it. At one point, we had a lake that we were working on. This is in Lincoln. We did all kinds of projects. You know those big walls, those huge blocks, and they go super high. We built some of those, but we also did lake projects. And this one was a big oval, and we had laid a couple dozen blocks down. We had to make sure the water level was going to be right so the water coming over the dam and the outflow there was the right level. And at one point, after we had laid a couple dozen And we had set them down, we had checked them, made sure they were all level and straight. We realized the calculations were wrong. We had to go through and pull those up because it wasn't right. It wasn't the right level. The water wasn't going to go over the right way, it was too low. And so we needed to get those blocks up. So we pulled them out, laid down a whole bunch of gravel. And isn't that the way, isn't it that way in our life? When we get going a ways, and we realize, man, I've been kind of going the wrong direction on this. Sometimes there's things we've got to uproot and take care of and readjust. And we've got to pull back and we've got to realign with the level. And who does it say is the level and the cornerstone? Jesus Christ himself. So when we say, well, I don't know if we can trust those in church history. Da, da, da. We have the word of God and we have the person of Jesus Christ to show us well, we can see where they got off, but this right here is where they should have been. There we go, get out on my hand. This right here is where they should have been. And this is where we need to be. This is where we need to align ourselves up with, is with this line, because this is what matters. This passage says our cornerstone for measuring is supposed to be Christ. I think a lot of times we think our cornerstone is culture. Well, culture's kind of moved this way on things. So we're going we're gonna to go just a little bit up here with where we're at on the church or in my personal life. I'm going to adjust based on culture. Or how about your friend's opinions? They have strong opinions about how you should live your life. And you know, I know that doesn't line up with God's word, but I'm going to I'm going to just admit, match my friends. It's not going to work. We have to align with the person of Jesus Christ. Believers seek to align with Jesus and his word. We align with Jesus and his word. What does that mean? We've got to be in the word church to find out what it says. And I tell you all this stuff in the church as chaotic as it is and can be, it's caused me to dive into the word and I've grown so much. And that's what trials do for us is they cause us to dive in in dependence to God and say, God, I need your wisdom. I am inadequate on myself. Show me where that line is. Show me where we need to be as a church. Show me where I need to be in my own personal life. It's gonna be steady. It's there. That line is steady. 2,000 years down the road, the cornerstone is still there and we can still line up with him. This is what Christ said in his word. Ephesians 2, I can just hear Dan Howard's voice reading this because he's read it so many times. Ephesians 2, I'll just read a couple verses, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. We are being built together for God to dwell in us. This is exciting we don't just show up on the weekend, sing some songs, hear a message, and go. We are deeply connected to one another. When God places someone somewhere, they're in close contact with them, right? When we build friendships, we build ministry objectives, and we do different things. And uh, sometimes there's a rough edge on me, and I don't fit quite in there. And God's got a pick me up and just like with those residential blocks sometimes there'd be a little extra concrete stuck on it and God has to chip it off so that I fit better into what he is building does that feel good oh yeah I love it I love getting the chisel taken to me no it doesn't feel good it doesn't feel good but do I trust God and what he is building and I have to look at this whole thing it can be painful Pastor John and I were co laborers and friends. We were tight in the ministry and serving together and, and using our gifts together to minister to people. Am I building the house? Or is God building the house? Now, John has another job somewhere lined up now, and I'm looking at where he's placed. And I just have to look and say, you know what you're doing, God. You're building the house and I may not get it all, but I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna trust you. So it hurts when somebody moves away. It hurts when we get replaced, get placed somewhere else. We were in close contact with these other stones, But God knows what he's doing and I trust him. I trust it. Sometimes in my OCD, I would be building these walls, these residential walls, and the shade just was a little different. I'm like, well, that one and that one are, those those don't go next to each other. So I'd pull this one out and stick another one in and I'd hold this one aside and then put it somewhere else. Well, that thing's locked in now, you know, but I, I was making these patterns. I think God's doing that. He's, in his master plan, he's putting things exactly the way he wants it to be designed. And I just, I need to trust. I need to trust what he's doing. During the 9.30 hour, uh, John sh- or Josh shared on e- in equipping the church on Christ's plan for community. So I encourage you to jump on there onto the website and look up the equip equipping the church uh, series. And this goes a lot deeper into our interaction with one another as church members. Um, So we don't have to go into it now because Josh, I read through all of his notes and it was awesome. So good work, Josh. Verse 7 This precious value then is for you who believe. What is the value? And what are we valuing? This precious stone, the never de- be disappointed, the tasting, the fellowship, the being built up. This precious value then is for who? Those of you who believe. Believers don't get this. So believers understand the value of their relationship with God, they see it, and we see this value in our relationship with who God is in our relationship with him. Believers can't understand or be a part of this until they become believers. Until they experience the transforming power of the gospel in their lives, when they lay their lives down before Christ and, and accept Christ and make him Lord of their life, they're not going to understand this value. And that's why we see people, they try and fix up their life and do this moral thing and play the church game and it looks like things are going fine, but then something happens, like, man, I'm out. It's because they don't understand the value of the eternal side and what God, how God wants us to implement the gospel in our everyday lives. And the second half of that says, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So what does this imply? This implies that somebody else was building, right? And they were laying a stone, laying a stone, lay a stone. Ooh, this one doesn't fit our plan. This doesn't fit our model. They kept building. That stone that they got rid of was Jesus Christ. He's talking about the religious system of the day. They had this whole religious system set up to worship God and to really control the people is what it was. And Jesus was the whole point of that system. He was the fulfillment of it. He was the Messiah that was supposed to fulfill all the prophecies that they were supposed to be believing in. And they get to Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the one who was going to give life to the whole thing, and they say, eh, doesn't fit our plan. And they just keep going. They hucked him aside. Jesus didn't fit in. He was cast aside from the religious system. Matthew 21, verse 42 and forty through 45 says, Jesus said to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking it about them. They knew. But did they change their plans? Did they change their way? No, they kept going that way and they crucified Jesus. They knew he didn't fit their mold And Jesus leaned into them. If you reject me, Jesus says, you're rejecting the kingdom of God. We must be careful because we too, as we're building in our lives and we're we're moving forward and we see something in the word of God or character of Christ, character of God that's in conflict with our lives, what do we do with it? Mm, I like my own way. You know what, God, you take it and you make life out of this. This is how it's supposed to be. Or do we just toss it, try to explain it away? We have to make sure when we're measuring, like if that rod I had, if I was too high, I could bend the truth a little bit and it would be in line. I could make it beep if I just leaned it over to the side. No, we can't do that. We don't toss him aside. Uh, During the establishment of the early church, Peter and John um, had been used by God to heal a lame beggar. And this is uh, following Peter's second sermon. Um, Peter and John had been taken into custody by the religious leaders who had rejected Christ. And this is um, in Acts chapter 4, the establishment of the church. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power and what name have you done this, healing the lame man? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's, it's kind of like the Tower of Babel. They get on this initiative in rebellion against God to build their own plan. They con- in Babel, they converged this undertaking to, um, to build their own structure rather than worship God and do things God's way. So I think the point here is that we as believers, we make changes In order to line up with Jesus, we change. We don't take that level and just tilt it to the side a little bit so that it lines up with us. We don't tilt the truth so that it lines up with us. We look at it and we change to line up with Jesus. We are to be like Christ and that's not because we're changing him. We are the ones changing. Often we point the finger um, at other people. How often are, are we building something ourselves? Our career, our management of finances, or how we spend our time, our love life, or our relationship with our significant others. We champion our way of doing it, and then we read something from God's word that confronts us, and Jesus in the spirit convicts us. Do we cast aside the thought, or do we move ahead our own way, or do we move in Jesus's way? We make the changes. Continuing in verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom, they were also appointed. The point here is God's way is not popular. The salvation plan isn't popular. Sure, the God loves you plan, the phrase there is popular. Putting John 3.16 across your face is popular. When we say, God loves you, we as sinners just say, oh, cool, me too. I love myself too. And everybody else should too. But there's a confrontation in the gospel that's offensive. And it's the confrontation of saying, your life doesn't line up with the level of Jesus. You're falling way short. And you are inadequate on your own to measure up to Jesus. That's the reality of the gospel, and that's offensive. It takes humility. It takes a broken and contrite heart. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to do that. Matthew 16, Luke emphasizes this all the time. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Deny himself. Take up the cross. Oh, that sounds like fun. No, that's offensive. I want to keep going in my own way. I like my way. This message is countercultural. The message of the world says, be whoever you want to be. It says pride, not humility. It says your best life now. It says happiness is what is most important. The last part of that verse says, to this doom they were appointed. This is offensive too. This doom. There's an eternity separated from God in hell. And that's an offensive message. If we leave that out, there's no need for salvation. And it minimizes the size of God's love that he saved us from it. But we need to share it. Is there hope for those people? Yes, if before they die, they place their faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him. We get to declare how good God is, how majestic God is, how powerful he is, how God's going to see us through our situation. Not mope, but declare the power of God into a situation. Believers represent Jesus to the world. We are now priests carrying the presence of God. We looked at that. We are the meeting place by which others experience God now because we are the temple. They used to go to a temple to worship and they'd enter there and God would come down and they would be ministered to by God there and they would leave and the presence of God would stay there. Now that temple is here. So everywhere we go, we are ministering to people, everybody that we come in contact with, God saved us so we would proclaim God's excellencies. Verse 10, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have a motivation to share the gospel because we once were unsaved and now we are saved and we know what God has done for us. We weren't a people. We weren't chosen. We weren't saved. And now we are if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've tasted. God said this of the nation Israel in the Old Testament and then salvation was opened up to me, a Gentile, a non-Jew, here in the New Testament. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Our fleshly desires do what? They wage war against my soul. Sin is deeply destructive. It is not a small, minor thing. If we minimize sin, we minimize the payment of Jesus on the cross. Do they wage war against my own impression of godliness, my own ability and goodness against my body? Maybe. There's there's physical consequences to sin. And This here, it says fleshly lusts. The word there isn't necessarily just sexual desire. It has to do with anything that is forbidden. And that reminds me of Adam and Eve. There was something forbidden to them and they went after it. And it waged war against their soul. Hey, you should try this out. And then verse 12, it tells us the opposite. Stay away from that. And verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Excellent. Aligned with Jesus. We see what his word says, and we see the character of God, and we align ourselves with that. The attacks. The attacks slander it's coming if you haven't experienced it already do you give on the line or do you hold it we're declaring the excellencies as they observe them it says there people are around us they're watching there's a common word for Christians and it's hypocrite because you're saying this and living that Jesus is this and you're nothing like him As they observe us, and if we're living rightly, they're going to glorify God. Do you see that? They're going to glorify God. In the day of visitation, that word episcopae, episcopalian, right? The Episcopal Church, they kind of stole that word. But it means investigation or inspection or ultimately judgment. There's this day of judgment coming. And so, believers, we carry an urgent message to the world as we minister and as we carry the presence of God in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. We carry an urgent message because the end times are soon. They're coming. The end times are coming. And they lived with an eager expectation for Christ's return then. How much more 2,000 years later should we live with that eager expectation and sharing the gospel with people? We carry a very urgent message because... The day of judgment is coming where each one of us gets judged and those who have not been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ will be forever separated from God. And maybe you're sitting there and saying, wow, is that me? That's scary. That's terrifying. The day of judgment is coming. A holy, perfect God has to punish my sin I'm hopeless if I can't earn it. And we can't. We need the blood of Jesus. Jesus came into this world and lived the perfect life, that straight line that nobody else could. And he died to pay for my sin and your sin. And by faith in his death and resurrection, you and I can have eternal life. And we become a living stone and we get placed with the rest of the believers and the spirit of God comes and inhabits and it's refreshing and it's awesome because the presence of God is there. It's exciting what can happen, but we're dead in our sins and we're a dead stone if we haven't placed our faith in Christ. If you are sitting there and you're thinking, man, I, that's me. I have not placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And I know if that day of judgment were to come and Christ were to return right now, I would not be one of them taken up into glory. If I died right now, I would be spending an eternity in hell. If that's you and you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, can you just meet me right down down here um, as the worship team is singing and we'll just go off into a back room and we'll talk and we'll pray together. It's the most important decision of your life. And as the worship team comes up, I just want to end with this thought here. Very famous hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, Dressed in his righteousness alone, So faultless I can stand before the throne, Because on Christ the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand, All other ground is sinking sand.